Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Stilkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I am great this morning. Thank you very much. Nice to nice to see you as always. Uh, can, before always we good be- to see you, Frank. Thank you. Before we begin, can I? Uh, I need to pass on some feedback from a listener. Oh, feedback from a listener. Okay, good. Yeah. So, so this is in response to last week's episode on. Uh, nationality testing. Uh, I heard from one of our most loyal listeners, Mimi from Edinburgh, with whom some of you will be familiar. I know you're familiar with her, David. Um, Mm. uh, She listens religiously to the podcast. Yes, she's a very dedicated listener and listens religiously to the podcast, mainly to make sure that I don't bully you. And she felt that I crossed the she felt that I crossed the line last week and was too aggressive in my in my conversation Uh with you. Um, And if I don't apologize both to you and to the other listeners, um, she's threatening to take away my Internet privileges for a week. And so I would like to I would like to publicly apologize to you, David, for my aggressive and intrusive tone with you and i will i will strive to be better in the future oh i i always take it as, as a, a loving jabs frank that's the way i, I interpret uh your occasionally cantankerous nature that, that that's part I, of the stick but thank I you frank. Think, anyway well thank mimi she's always looking out for you you have a guardian angel david oh uh, well i i i, I yes uh, without a doubt uh thank you mimi for, for watching out for me i, I definitely need the help and and, uh, and right. david if I may, we, we also heard from another listener, uh, Ian from California, who's again one of our more loyal listeners, and we thank him for yes. his feedback. And this was regarding some technical issues we've been having that we are trying to address. So thank you, Ian, for oh, yes. getting in touch. Oh, oh definitely. Thank you. We, as everyone knows, we are, we are working every week to try to make this better, and sometimes we make it worse in the process of trying to make it better, but that's in the nature of, 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 of the creative process, as it were. Right. Uh, the United States right now, uh, you know, a couple months or less, a month and a half into the, the Biden administration, seems as divided as it ever has been. So much so that one um, polling organization asked the question whether the United States should be split up or not. Uh, this is a group called Bright Line Watch, which is a group of, of political scientists. Frank, you've actually the one who found this study. You want to tell us a little bit about uh, the study that uh, where they asked Americans whether they wanted to sp- uh, have the United States broken up and a surprising number of them said yes. Tell us a little bit about the study that you found, Frank. Sure. Thanks, Dave. In fact, as uh, academics, we obviously have to acknowledge our sources. So I need to acknowledge our debt. I was listening to the 538 podcast last week and they, they had a brief discussion of this survey and I went and had a look at it and called it to your attention. So basically, Brightline Watch, as you say, is a it's a uh, survey conducted by political scientists, I believe. It, it seems to be a credible survey. And what they are, were looking at um, in the, in, there are lots of questions in the survey, but the, the question around secession is the one we want to focus on. Uh, they were looking at basically political attitudes in the United States um, in the month and a half since uh, Joe Biden became president. And they asked a question about, so they asked two questions about the possibility of secession or breaking up the country. And I want us to take a minute to a few minutes today to talk about these, both to historicize them, but also to kind of think through some of the implications of it. So mm. the first question they asked, and bear with me while I read this to you, is some people say the divisions within our country have grown so deep that we would be better off dividing into more like-minded regions that would govern themselves separately. Do you support or oppose the idea of the United States dividing into more than one nation? 
and 29% of respondents, which is nearly a third, um, expressed support for this. 10% were strongly in favor of it, and 19% were somewhat in favor of it. There was a partisan breakdown to this, unsurprisingly, and I think um, this is interesting. So the support was highest among Republicans. 35% of Republicans favored this notion. 37% of independents favored it. And only 21% of Democrats favored it. And I think that reflects whoever the party in power is. I think if you'd, if they'd conducted this survey in, in February and March of 2017, the results might have been similar, but the partisan breakdown might have been, might have been reversed, but I don't know. Um, then they, they went on to ask a second question. Uh, which we may want to, to get into, which was, would you support or oppose your state, you know, insert the name of your state, seceding from the United States to join a new union with, and then there was a list of states and there were different regions, uh, the, the Pacific region, mountain, south, heartland, and northeast. We could talk about that in a few minutes. So, but let's begin with that first question. I think the first question is interesting, both because it elicited nearly, uh, support of nearly a third of the respondents, uh, but also because doesn't really use the word, if I'm going to be careful, it uses the word separate, going, uses the word separately, doesn't talk about secession, it mm. talks about dividing. And it's interesting because they're asking about secession, but secession, of course, has particular historic resonances. And I'm looking at you, David, as the expert on the Civil War period when kind of yeah. secession was ruined for everybody, right? So, so what's your <laughs> response to this question? Well, what, what's your response to this question? And then what's your, what's your historical take, I guess? Uh, so, so my first the thought was that, you know, when you, when you sort of read the, the, the survey this is a part of, you know, they said this is a new question that they're asking, and they're asking it in part because there have been some uh, political leaders in, um, in Texas uh, and in Mississippi uh, and in Wyoming, uh, all Republican political leaders, who have actively called for some kind of secession within the past couple of months. Uh, and so, you know, the fact that this, we're even asking this question, I think is, is remarkable, right? The fact that this is a, a question open for debate. Uh, you know, the phrasing that they use, especially in the first question, uh, seems to imply a sort of an amicable divorce, right? Like, wouldn't it be better if we all, wouldn't we all get along better with each other if we split along and it seems as if this seems to be a mutually agreed upon kind of secession. Frank, you have a thought about that? Yeah, yeah no, no, just to, 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 uh, to, to quote the language for you, David, to, to, so mm. you can develop that point. The way it was framed was, would we be better off dividing into more like-minded regions? Better off dividing into like-minded regions sounds as you said, amicable. It doesn't sound dangerous necessarily. So, so uh, I, I was kind of just giving you, yeah, giving yeah. you that language. Um, and you know, when you uh, you know compare that to say secession in 1860 and 1861, that's a very different kind of of framing of what secession looks like. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I think the framing of the question may have led inflated the number of people who thought it, it sounded okay, because if you, you phrase it that way, um, if you were to phrase it in a slightly more aggressive way, you know, would you favor the United States breaking up into constituent parts? Um, I, I'm betting the numbers might be a bit smaller. Um, 
the second part of the question where that where they ask it about uh you know if they and they have these regions and i'm not quite sure that regions actually make that much sense but um you know would you like your state to join with these other neighboring states to form their own country would you be okay with that version of the question what's striking about the numbers there is that there are that the mine in places with very high support from one party like in the south where republicans seem to have a very strong support for southern independence whatever that looks like um the democratic support for that is remarkably low you know and one can imagine what it would be like were the south to break apart uh, from the united states to establish its own republic what it would be like to be a democrat in that political context you know what is the rights of a a minority community, whether it's a minority community in a political sense or a minority community in, in a sociological uh, demographic sense, you know, within a, a, a more homogeneous uh, political entity in which one has, would have, you know, no power at all. Um, you know, at least if you are a, 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 a Democrat, you happen to live in, let's say, uh, let's find a very red state, uh, Oklahoma, you at least know that you're part of this bigger nation of which your rights are going to be protected on some level, even if they are not necessarily deeply respected on the, on the local level. Um, so I found that very, very striking. It goes the other way as well, though, David, it should be said yeah. uh, in, in partisan terms, although it's not quite as extreme. So in the Pacific region that they've identified, which is um, consists of California, Washington, Oregon, Hawaii, and Alaska. Forty-one uh, percent of Democrats support secession to create that region, but only twenty-four twenty-four percent of Republicans do. Presumably, uh, because of the same line, all along because they're thinking along the same lines that you are in terms of Democrats in the South. Now it's even more pronounced in the South because in the Southern region, which is more or less the old Confederacy plus Oklahoma and Kentucky, um, fifty percent of Republicans support that, according to this survey, whereas only thirteen percent of Democrats do. So it's it is more pronounced in 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 the south that the, but to but there's a similar tendency if you will i think in the i guess just to show that this is a kind of bipartisan response um depending on region in looking at the pacific region um as well whereas the other regions are much more evenly balanced i, I think so so yeah. it illustrates the point you're making about being a, a minorities whether they be racial or ethnic but also political minorities let's just say um that feel would feel besieged in one of these new smaller countries i guess yeah i mean one of the things i think though that makes this moment now with with secession different from 1860 1861 is that many of the divisions in the united states are not necessarily over uh, clear regional lines they're as much over urban rural lines as they are over uh, as they are as, as clear you know there's been a clean border of the Confederacy, relatively speaking, um, today, given the ways that politics breaks down. I mean, if you think about places like Georgia, where you've got very strong Democratic hotspots, especially in the sort of Atlanta area, but then sort of everywhere else is red. You know, you know likewise, 
there was a, a state senator in Illinois uh, a couple of years or quite recently who said, look, maybe we should kick Chicago out of the state of Illinois because we want Illinois to be the sort of Illinois of, of downstate Illinois and Chicago is politically disturbing that so we should cut that the, the urban center off. I think what is more likely given the sort of the demographic and political alignment at, at this moment is, is less of states breaking off from the federal union as states breaking off from or parts of states breaking off from other states that there seems to be some fairly profound political divisions within states and the sort of great sort that's happening between urban spaces and rural spaces is, is uh, you know, becoming politically un untenable. We can think of uh, in 2013, there was a contingent of people in Colorado that wanted to establish a state of North Colorado because they thought that the, you know, the rest of the state didn't see the world the way that they did. There's, there's independence movements within uh, rural communities. Um, in, in more than a dozen states right now. Uh, Oregon, for instance, the people in, in Eastern Oregon don't like the people in, in Western Oregon uh, for all kinds of reasons and don't see themselves as being um, politically aligned with one another. You know, Portland and, and the rural areas are, are, you know, lumped together in a, a political union um, that dates from 150 years ago, uh, but it may not make sense anymore. Uh, so, I mean, this question is asking about secession in a, uh, actually in a sort of a 19th century context, you know, in the, which a group of states are going to break away and form their own republic, but I can imagine a different kind of secession happening um, in the near future in which it's states breaking themselves up into, into smaller constituent parts. Um, whether that's good or bad, I don't know, but I think that's a, a possibility as well. Well, there's precedent for that, of course. Uh, you know, the District of Maine was part of Massachusetts for almost 200 years uh, before it became a state in 1820. Mm. And West Virginia, of course, broke off from, from Virginia during the Civil War. Um, so, so there is some precedent for that. I, I think you're right. I think the uh, the point you're making, the larger point you're making, mm. is that the, the political geography of the United States doesn't lend itself necessarily to easily dividing regions or even states um, because of the way people have uh, political communities are, are are so intermixed with each other so it, it wouldn't be an easy thing to do the, uh, I'd say a couple things though if I, if I may the first is um, my man TJ actually gave some thought to this um, before he became president uh, certainly earlier mm. in, in his political career um, in the 1790s in particular, but uh, he conceived, he thought, well, actually maybe America, America, the United States was much smaller then than it is now, but he thought even then it might be too big to govern properly and that a confederacy of confederacies, as it were, might be the best way to go. So you could have people, like-minded people in particular regions, and he's all hes all about imagined political communities, would mm. kind of get together and form <laughs> a political community with, with um, you know, you want government as close to the voters as possible, and having regional confederacies might be the best thing. So this, this idea, of course, I joked at the beginning about it being spoiled in 1860, but it's not uh, I think, I, I guess, following on from that, I, you know, Jefferson was wrong about a lot of things. He might not have been wrong about this insofar as 
we conceive of political communities in particular ways, and they're often associated with maps and how we see things when we when we look at a map. Um, and and maps change, you know. So we are sitting right now in in Scotland, you and I. Well, Scotland is part of a political community, the United Kingdom, which recently exited the European Union. Scotland may or may not exit the United Kingdom in the next few years. Well, you know, that remains to be seen, but it's a distinct possibility. In our lifetimes, um, you know, the Soviet Union used to exist and now it no longer exists. Mm. And it was broken up into different nation states. Uh, Political maps aren't permanent and political maps change. And we tend to think of the United States as having this kind of unchanging map. But there's no real reason, if one considers this in a kind of broader historical context, to assume that that is so or will always be so. The interesting thing I think about the United States is, or with this particular question is, it's essentially the Hotel California. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. In law... There's the in and constant and in the way the U.S. Constitution works, there's a function available to add new states. There's no function currently constitutionally, and to some extent, this is what your peer yeah. your guys were all about in 1860 and 61 to exit the union. But one could conceive. Let, let's assume not a military divide in the United States. So it's not the Civil War we're talking about, a new Civil War, but rather things go as the premise of this question suggests amicably. There'd have to be a constitutional amendment to make this possible, to have an exit, uh, an amicable exit policy for the United States. But is that impossible? Is that impossible to conceive of? Is it a bad thing or a good thing? Would it be a bad thing that to have, a, have, an, have, a, have an exit from the United States for states? Well, you know, going back to sort of the original constitution and pointing out this, you know, this idea about you know, having mechanisms for adding states. I get the impression that, that you know, the, the founders, when they wrote the Constitution and the years afterwards, uh, don't have a clear idea about whether secession is possible or legal among themselves. There's no coherent agreement among them. Um, you know, Jefferson has, as you pointed out, has had these ideas about, about having, a, you know, various federations within uh, the continent. Uh, um, Madison, who of course is, is often called the father of the Constitution, he writes a letter to Daniel Webster after Daniel Webster, uh, this is in 1833, had given a speech bashing uh, nullification and, and Madison's like, good job, Daniel. Um, you know, and says like, that's really anathema to what we had intended when we wrote the Constitution that, you know, to be sure, he says, you know, when you have a tyrant, then you can can get rid of a tyrant and you can overthrow a tyranny. But, you know, in a republic, this is a permanent union. Um, but I think you're finding other kinds of you know, people of that generation coming to different conclusions about what kind of, of country they were establishing. What does the Constitution mean in terms of, of, of a union of, of states and what kind of sovereignty do states maintain and what kinds of ability or kind of exit clauses exist if any you know we've got a whole variety of people in the antebellum period talking about disunion from the the hartford convention in 1814 uh, during during the war of 1812 where they're talking about maybe we should have new england break off from the rest of the country uh, 
you know, that obviously didn't go in. And, and Frank is, is, you can't see this, is, is, is very excited about the Hartford Convention, probably more excited about the Hartford Convention than anyone's been in, uh, in, in you know, uh, 100, 200 years. But, um, you know, that actually backfires in all kinds of ways for the Federalists. But you're also having groups uh, like abolitionists also talk about secession. You know, William Lloyd Garrison and a, and a number of, of abolitionists after the annexation of Texas, they're like, I'm not. They say basically, we're not sure we want to be part of a country anymore that is both built upon enslaved labor and in which slave owners, because of the three fifths compromise, have a stranglehold on political power. You know, and and the. New England Anti-Slavery Society says, look, look, we should actually secede from the United States and establish a, a society without slavery. Um, and so there's, there's a whole rhetoric about, about disunion and secession uh, in the antebellum period coming from a variety of different corners. Uh, it's not just uh, you know, white Southerners who end up actually doing it or trying to do it um, that are at play. Um, Thinking about this, though, constitutionally, one of the things, obviously, that's changed since the Civil War is not only did the Confederacy lose the Civil War, which in some ways closes that door about secession, but there's two really interesting Supreme Court cases um, that deal with secession in the aftermath of the Civil War uh, that seem to suggest that, or actually, they don't even seem to suggest, they, they state that secession is, is impossible. One is Texas versus white from 1869. This is a kind of a complicated case legally. It has to do with bonds that the state of Texas had acquired as part of the compromise of 1850 about their Western borders. They had these federal bonds and they ended up trying to sell them uh, in 1861 when Texas is trying to establish its own military to, to support the Confederacy, what have you. There's this whole question about whether they could legally sell the bonds under the Confederacy. And the Supreme Court said, ultimately, that the Constitution had created an indestructible union that Texas couldn't have left the union during, during secession, during the Civil War, because that was not something, an option that Texas had. Uh, so it's, you know, Texas, is, the Supreme Court says there in 1869 that, that secession had never been legal uh, that the Confederacy was always illegitimate. The states that had claimed to leave the Union hadn't left the Union because that was not an option that was open to them. The other interesting case that comes a couple of years later, which, and these often don't get paired together, but I think there's a relationship between them. There's the Supreme Court case of Virginia versus West Virginia. Are you familiar with this one, Frank? This one's significantly less. I'm familiar. not. I knew Texas versus white. I, I expected we were going to talk about Texas versus white, but tell me about Virginia versus, Virginia versus West, Virginia. West Virginia. Right. So the Constitution says that, you know, in the whole section, as you mentioned, about creating new states, that you can't carve out new states from old states unless the old state agrees to it. Right. Well, what happens with West Virginia is West Virginia, uh, What's now West Virginia used to be part of Virginia. During the Civil War, West Virginia breaks off from Virginia, makes itself its own state. So West Virginia secedes from Virginia. Now, uh, most of Virginia during that point is obviously considers itself part of, of the Confederacy. Um, but there was a basically a, a, a government in exile that was recognized by the federal government as being the government of Virginia, 
which was made up of people from Virginia who had fled the Confederacy. And uh, the Supreme Court said that actually that was the legitimate government of Virginia during the Civil War, and they gave permission for West Virginia to break off. Um, and so I think one of the things that's, that's going to be at play here, um, you know, in these various secession movements that we have going on right now, and it seems to me we have more secession movements going on right now than, than at most points in American history, uh, you know, is if states break apart, it does require the consent of the state that's being broken apart to make that happen, um, which is going to make this uh, complicate you know, these various secession movements. When people talk about secession, Frank, are you, are you actively worried that people are going to try to do something about it, or are they just talking? Uh, that's a very good question, David. I think at the moment they're just talking, and some of the, you know, what, you, what you're seeing are often cranks in state legislatures or in local governments making this kind of, these kinds of comments, right? The lieutenant governor of so-and-so or a state senator from such-and-such, such. Uh, and I don't think it adds up to much. I think we need to make a distinction, and I think this is really, really important between mm. violent secession movements, and I think, you know, which have to be unacceptable. We can't have the, you know, we have to do as much as possible to get the gun out of politics, not to introduce it to politics. So mm. violent secession movements, and if you will, what might be politically creative <laughs> movements mm. to say, okay, you know, whether it's California should be two states because it just makes sense or what have you. I, I mean, I, I don't think we should necessarily rule out. Mm all legal, and I think legal is important here, political reconfigurations that might be possible. Mm. I think we have to think creatively. I don't think we necessarily need to be bound by um, arrangements made uh, decades, in some cases, centuries ago that aren't fit for purpose. So I think thinking creatively and constitutionally about the way we create and organize our political communities is a useful thing to do. I don't think, and, and I don't think secession uh, can be achieved or should be achieved or even attempted at the point of a gun. I mean, that's hmm. self-evident, I realize, but I think, I think there's an important distinction there. And I don't think everybody, I, I think some of the people talking about this are just cranked, right? Or they're sore losers, or they live in political spots where they recognize or that although their group might be in charge locally, whether in their state or in, in the country at large, they can't win and they want out. I think that happens every time we have a major kind of political shift in the country and people talk about both leaving the country or seceding. I think mm. there's a bit of nonsense that goes on that's just part of the kind of ambient noise of our politics. I don't think we have to worry about that. I do think it's an important discussion to have, or I think there's a, there's, I think we should think creatively, but we have to divorce it and disentangle it from the politics of the gun. So I guess that would be my conclusion. I guess, you know, I, I think I think there are a couple of key factors, though, in the United States to bear in mind. One is the constitutional one, because, as I said, I think this has to be legal. So I think you'd have to have some sort of new constitutional arrangement to make this possible. You'd also have to decide what the arrangement between and among the states, the former states would be. I, um, I think that you know, if, to use that Jeffersonian vision of a, of a confederacy of confederacies, if you will. Um, and he's not using confederacy in the 1860s sense of the word. He's using it more in the, in the 1780s sense of the word, um, where I think we could have some sort of different political orientations that mm. still fall under the rubric of the United States. And I think that would be important because um, the United States is not just a collection of 50 states and 
uh, number of territories and so on. It's also a major piece of the global international order with lots of nuclear weapons and mm. the world's largest military. And it's a force for both disorder, but also for undergirding global order. And, and it, you know, it, if it breaks up, um, that has implicated that has global implications and so there would have mm. to be there would have to be some attention paid to that question it's not simply like you know czechoslovakia is the thing i've been thinking about in anticipation of this episode i thought well czechoslovakia breaking into slovakia and the czech republic happened peacefully it happened more or less amicably and it happened under it happened within a larger entity that is the european mm. union so if states in the United States or even groups of states want to reconfigure themselves, but do so within under the union, uh, under the heading, the, the broader heading mm. of the United States within this larger union, that could be that could work quite well. Yeah. Look what look at Czechoslovakia or the former Czechoslovakia, the modern Czech Republic and Slovakia. On the other hand, the Soviet Union might be the better example of a large superpower with a with a huge military that broke apart minority groups in the in the constituent republics that came out of that felt oppressed which led to conflict that's you know helps explain the war in ukraine example mm. i my the hope might be what happened in in czechoslovakia the fear is that it'd be more like the soviet union and that would be quite destabilizing globally so this is not just a local matter for the united states so i, I guess yeah. that's my my response mm. i mean the reason why i asked about about how seriously we should take it is because Part of the historians looking back at, at the secession crisis from 1860, part of the ways in which they make sense about the ways in which northern politicians responded to secession was that many of them didn't take secession very seriously because southern states had been threatening to secede for years. And, and they sort of treated it like the, the child who's threatening to take his ball and go home. Um, you know, and and so they you know they they saw it as as a as a political ploy rather than an actual movement for independence. Uh, you know, it's the threat of 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 leaving that that um, people are are making rather than an actual statement about political political futures. Um, I think one of the issues though that that's going to come up, and one of the sort of driving forces behind secession uh, movements. Is 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 the fear of the, the the federal government, and you know I think that the movement for secession uh, at the state level seems to have bumped up pretty significantly with Obamacare and the sort of imposition of federal policy that states don't like, um, and so you know even if we reorient the 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 constitution of individual states within the federal union those people won't be happy unless the, the sort of power of the federal government to, to make sort of universal changes is, is severely restricted. I mean, if we think about, um, well, if, say events recently in Texas with the power grid, like they designed their power grid in a stupid way, simply to avoid federal regulation with the had disastrous effects upon the people who lived in, in parts of Texas that had either uh, the power cut off or, or ended up with, with astronomical power bills that were the result of a, you know, a political system making, making, you know, infrastructure choices. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, this would require 
as you point out, some pretty significant constitutional changes, both big C and little C constitutional changes in order to make this, you know, work. Um, but your point about sort of the, the, you made earlier about the, the dynamic map of the United States in which, you know, the, one of the things that, 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 that I think uh, has, has shaped the debates recently is the American map hasn't changed much in a hundred years. Um, that we've had a relatively static uh, geography. Um, whereas, you know, uh, the 19th century, the map is inherently dynamic with territories being established and then territories being split into other territories, uh, both for, for political reasons, uh, uh, at the local level and political reasons at the national level. Um, you know, and they had no problem in the 19th century splitting up the Dakota Territory into two territories and splitting up Nebraska. Well, I mean, actually they had problems, uh, huge problems in some ways, but uh, you know, the idea that the territory, that, that the sovereignty of, of individual states and the geographic integrity of them couldn't be split up was something that they dealt with fairly regularly. If you were going to redesign the map, Frank, would you pick these particular regions that the, this uh, group did? Yeah, well, let me just, uh, for our listeners, go through these regions quickly, if you will. Um, so they have a Pacific region, which is California, Washington, Oregon, Hawaii, and Alaska. So it's the Pacific Coast plus Hawaii and Alaska. And there's a kind of... Uh, Geographic logic to that, I suppose, although mm. um, it's a very large region um, geographically. But there's a mountain region of Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, Nevada, Arizona, and New Mexico. The south is the old Confederacy plus uh, Oklahoma and um, Kentucky. The heartland, and I don't even like the name because I hate that phrase because it suggests the rest of us don't you know, kind of have a have a purchase on the heart of America mm. is Michigan, Ohio, West Virginia, Illinois, Indiana, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Missouri, North Dakota, South Dakota, Kansas, and Nebraska. So in terms of the number of states, actually, I think the South is probably larger. And then there's the Northeast. Mm. And this annoys me because I believe New England should not be uh, with the with New York. But anyway, it's Maine, New Hampshire, <laughs> Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, and the District of Columbia. I actually think the Northeast makes a lot of sense in kind of political and economic and, and mm. geographic terms, uh, notwithstanding my, my New England prejudices. Uh, I, you know, this is, these guys aren't sort of, they were suggesting these as possibilities in order to ask the question. They don't seem to be the craziest um, distinctions or divisions that, that uh, I've seen. I mean, it makes sense. The one thing I would say is I, I once, uh, I had a graduate student, good friend who's, a, I, I, don't usually comment on, on matters relating to the United Kingdom on this mm. podcast, uh, but who is a very, very committed uh, Scottish nationalist, very committed to Scottish independence, um, and, and made a, makes a very strong case for it. He's a very smart guy, uh, but he is from, he's from the Highlands. And I did say to him, I said, hey, you, uh, insert name, um, the thing is, you don't want to be governed by Edinburgh any more than you want to be governed by London. I know this. And he said, yes, I'm not going to do his accent because that will be insulting to everybody and embarrassing to me. He said, yes, but this is the first <laughs> step. Soon we'll have a Highland Republic with Inverness as its capital. And that is the one reason not to do this is that's the logic of this. Where, where, you know, once you say, mm. OK, we're going to divide into Pacific Mountain, South Heartland and Northeast, then New England says, well, we don't actually want to be in the Northeast with New York and New Jersey. So there, there's, there is a question of where does this stop? 
Yeah. You know, and, and there's and even like an independence movement. In, yeah. I mean, like there's even, you know, thinking about these state independence movements, there's an independence movement for the north of Maine to break off from the rest of Maine because they say the south of Maine doesn't understand us and the north of Maine, which from talking to people from Maine, that's a real cultural division. But on the other hand, that's also kind of nuts. Uh, there are cultural divisions the, everywhere. I mean, Staten Island is different from the rest of New York City. Staten Island, <laughs> Staten Island, uh, not that long ago, voted to secede from the city of New York, um, and and actually got an overwhelming support for independence and and for political reasons having to do with things in Albany, it didn't happen. Um, but yeah, and and uh, Staten Island continues to be quite different than the rest of of the city. But um, you know, this is actually something that that. You know, during the Civil War, that that people like Abraham Lincoln feared. They said he said, "Look, if the South seceded because they didn't like the results of the election, you know what the logical end of that is? Is every time you have an election you don't like the results of, you say, fine, I'm taking my ball and going home, and you're going to end up with a uh, you know deeply fragmented kind of almost anarchy of of, of separate sovereign." entities of, of you know each town is their own uh end in and of themselves um the thing that struck me i mean I, i'm not sure their maps make a whole lot of sense uh i'm not sure for instance alaska belongs in the pacific region it belongs geographically but it doesn't fit politically with those uh other four states uh the northeast even if you dislike the, the fact that New England is lumped with New York. Uh, the interesting thing about that is actually support for that group breaking away, at least in their, their, their numbers. Actually, that's the one region where there seems to be parity between Democrats, Republicans, and independents, all approximately a third of whom were in favor of the Northeast establishing uh, its own regional uh, republic. Uh, so, which I think is interesting about sort of the politics of that region, that, that that seems to be the one place where there isn't this strong support from the party in charge and, and strong opposition from the people who are the minority uh, political community. Um, That's right. So the numbers in the Northeast, it's 32% uh, of people in, in that Northeast region, which is basically D.C. and Maryland, Northeast to, to Maine. It's all those states. Um, the, the partisan, so it was 32% overall. In terms of the partisan divide, 34% of Democrats who are the probably the dominant, who are the dominant political group in that region supported the idea, 27% of Republicans and 27% of independents. So you're right, that's pretty close. In mm. all the other regions, it's much more extreme with the party in power favoring independence for, for however the region is defined and the minority mm. party um, opposing it to some extent, and in in some cases to a large extent. In fact, the the partisan breakdown. So in in the South, thirty three percent of overall respondents support um, the independence for the South is defined in this way by this uh, survey. Fifty percent of Republicans and only thirteen percent of Democrats in the Heartland region. Um, it's 24%. So support for independence in the heartland is lowest of the people in the heartland believe most, most strongly in the United States as it is, which mm. is probably why they're the heart, probably why they're the heartland. Nonetheless, so it's 24% in that region uh, with 
29% of Republicans favoring leaving and only 11% of uh, Democrats favoring favoring that. And the Democrats, well, th- that region is more split uh, politically because places like Ohio, West Virginia, and Indiana are Republican dominated, whereas other states are, are either more closely divided or Democrat mm. aligned. So th- th- that's more politically mixed, which might be why they they came out as they did. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, well, I mean, the whole idea of American regions is, is fascinating to me. Um, I just want to sort of tell sort of two examples of, of, of this from, from my own experience. Uh, when I moved to North Dakota, uh, which is in the heartland region in this, this particular group's uh, uh, split up, um, one of the first people who I met there when I was, uh, I guess it was, I think it was a realtor, uh, they said, well, uh, is this your first time living in, in the Midwest? And I said, well, no, I used to live in Chicago. <laughs> and they said, no, Chicago's not the Midwest. And I was thinking like Chicago's, in my mind, was the epicenter of the Midwest. But, uh, and I actually had multiple people from North Dakota tell me that Chicago was not in the Midwest. I'm not quite sure where it is. Um, but I had a very similar experience at one point. I gave a, a a lecture in, in Mississippi and I was flying from North Carolina where I was, where I was living at the time. I flew to Mississippi. People picked me up at the airport. They said, welcome to the South. And I said, well, actually I just came from North Carolina, which in my mind was in the South. It you know, was in the Confederacy and the whole deal. Right. And uh, they said, no, that's not the South. This is the South. Um, you know, and the sort of idea of, of some places being more, Midwestern or more Southern than other places um, suggests I'm, I'm not quite sure what to make of, of these kinds of regional identities and the ways in which people sort of think about themselves as being in the heartland or not being in the heartland and whether Chicago is part of the Midwest or not um, because it doesn't conform to some particular sort of cultural ideal of what those, those uh, regions symbolize. Um, the place of the independence in this survey is, is striking because we usually think of independence as being the people who are the moderates somewhere between Democrats and Republicans. But at least independents are more in favor of some kind of secession than uh, either Democrats or Republicans, and, uh, which is not what I expected. Um, I'm not quite sure what to make of that. That may be the, the libertarian uh, segment of the population and libertarians do have a strong uh, secessionist impulse in their, in their ideology. Uh, I'm not quite sure. Do you have any ideas about how to make sense of the independent support for, for uh, breaking up the country? Well, I'm, I mean, I, political scientists, of course, can speak much more expertly about this than I can. Um, uh, however, I would say, I think independents uh, fall into at least two, categories undoubtedly more but there are those who are call themselves independent but basically align with the dominant party in whatever region or community they happen to live in so i think a lot of those independents in in the region identified as the south probably at least those who are white lean Hmm. republican uh even if they're even if they don't identify as such and i think that would be true uh the the opposite might be true in the pacific region or the northeast mm. in terms of a, a democratically but then there are other independents who are genuinely independent um who i think are of come from the have that libertarian strain you're talking about david who probably are 
they're, well, first of all, they're attracted by idiosyncratic political views uh, to some extent. I don't say that as criticism. I say they don't neatly map onto the, onto the, the two, two parties as currently constituted. Uh, and they like to think outside the box. So they, they, some of them are eccentrics and cranks. I mean, and so, so I think that, mm. that the genuinely independent, I'm not surprised that they might be attracted to this way of thinking for a variety of reasons, which would be difficult to map. And it would be very interesting to have a survey of these beliefs and really try to dig down as opposed to saying, okay, the original question, if we can return to it, um, some people say the divisions of this country have grown so deep that we are better off dividing into more like-minded regions. Well, that's actually saying, well, you know what? We don't want to have a violent separation. Things have gotten so bad. Maybe this is the best way. The way to you avoid violence. How that, yeah, this, that way of framing would be attractive to people. I don't believe that 30% of the people in the United States or 29% in this survey actually want to actively break up the United States. I suspect that's high, but I think when you frame it that way, it mm -hmm. could be appealing to people. Let me, as we wrap up, David, let me, let me re return to the original question. And I want to put this to you as a historian of the civil war. I joked at the beginning that secession in 1860 and 61 mm -hmm. spoiled it for the rest of us. Uh, is that true in the sense that, you know, you, you began, uh, you, you made a very interesting point a few minutes ago when you talked about how Northerners didn't take secession talk from Southerners seriously and they misread that moment culminating in the Civil War. Okay, I, I'm sure that's true and you, you know that history better than I do. That being the case and the fact that people don't operate in a vacuum, we have this historic legacy of secession in the United States. That's particularly powerful in the United States and has powerful resonances that are both attractive to some, I think a minority, mm. but also repulsive to many. Does uh, the country's history with secession previously mean that it's probably, despite all this rhetoric, impossible in the near to medium future? Or not impossible, unlikely. Yeah, nothing to... Um... I think the legacy of the Civil War in, in this respect, you know, and the sort of warning that that provides, I think, is a is a one that does maybe taint is the wrong word, but but at least gives people pause when we think about secession, especially about how, you know, the Confederacy established itself, seceded from the Union for the purpose of maintaining. Uh, human bondage um you know the, the 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 driving forces for secession right now tend to be over um equally divisive kinds of uh, of political issues whether that's things like uh, abortion rights or or gun rights um or uh, thinking about sort of some of the things that came out of the CPAC conference uh, this past weekend, uh, the rights of, of transgender people. And, you know, one can imagine, you know, what uh, these, these new republics would look like and what the kinds of, 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 of rights that, that my, uh, uh, the, the minority political community would have in those, those new republics it can be quite frightening. Um, and and um, so I think that's a, both a legacy of, of, of sort of the Civil War, but I think it's also, um, you know, when, when people who are calling for secession and articulating a vision of what their new republic would look like, um, 
you know, one can imagine the uh, an independent Republic of Texas, and Texas, of course, is. If you go to Texas, some Texans are quite proud of the fact that Texas was at one point its own republic, and they think they could potentially be one again. Hence the the power grid issue. What you know, their vision of an independent republic of Texas would look like, what that would mean for the state of of gay marriage, what it would mean for abortion rights, what it would mean for uh, the state of public schools, and just all a manner of issues. Um, you know, I think the idea of the country breaking apart for everybody can be I mean like as a, a purely uh, divorced from the specifics of it you know that's different than than what these republic new republics would look like um and, and i think it would be a, a pretty dangerous place potentially particularly then what would these new republics how would they relate to one another and 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 countries that break apart it's off, you know, the, the likelihood of them going to war with one another is, is not zero. Uh, even if the, the breakup is amicable at the beginning, uh, what it looks like a generation down the line could be very different. Um, yeah, so the whole thing scares me, uh, but lots of things scare me right now. Maybe the political moment. Yeah, I mean, I think actually the, 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 security, the security implications of this would be quite would be quite important, uh, both mm. in terms of the relations between these new republics, um, but also their relations with the rest of the world and who would, you know, so, so I actually think that that's actually a really important dimension to this. That, yeah. That, so uh, like never yeah, figures in the conversation. If, if North Dakota declares its independence, do they get to keep the nukes? Um, right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is a scary thought uh, on all kinds of levels. Right. Uh, time for last drops, Frank. What, what, what do we got as, as we ponder the future of the American Republic if it continues to exist in its current form? Yeah, I just want to give a shout out. I'm, I'm pretty sure we've probably mentioned this in the past, but uh, mm. while I was doing my chores this weekend, I was listening to back episodes of Daniel Galata's Age of Jackson podcast. Um, and it and and uh, Liz Covert's uh, Ben Franklin's World are two history podcasts that are, relate to the periods I'm interested in, particularly interested in, that are just great. And I was listening to Daniel's podcast, and, and what I really like about his podcast is he's such a good interviewer. Actually, he asks good mm. questions, but he allows his the, the people he interviews, the mostly uh, other scholars, to to the time and space to respond well. And and um, even when it's when he's interviewing somebody whose book is something that I don't think I'm interested in, I often come away thinking, "Oh, that was really good." And so, and and he he's a he's a PhD student at Stanford. Um, I think he's done a really good job kind of establishing a space in public history. Um, and, and I just want to say thank you, Daniel, for, for your hard work. I, I really, really enjoy that podcast. Yeah, no, I and Liz, of course, but yeah, I, I, sure. I happen to be listening to Daniel, Daniel's this weekend. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, sorry, David. Yeah, no, I, th I think it's a, it's a great podcast. And I think, you know, he's been able to get some amazing, amazing guests on there in part because he is a, a, good, a good host. And I think it sort of speaks to the sort of... Uh, value of the, the media podcast medium for historians of, of all different uh, you know phases in their political in their in their career whether it's you know uh, PhD students like like Daniel or or people who have their PhD like Liz covert who have decided to sort of make podcasting her career or, or or geriatric people like us who are doing this for whatever reason um, right lot, lot, lots of room in the podcast world for all kinds of voices. I bet Daniel never gets yelled at for interrupting people because he's so polite and never interrupts people. 
Unlike he, he is, he is very polite, <laughs> and he's also very well dressed. Um, and 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 that is, uh, neither of us are particularly uh, uh, inclined in that direction. So good, good for him. Um, at least that's your last mind. drop, David. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited about an event that's that's happening tomorrow. I think it, you still might be able to get tickets if you do it immediately right after this this show is posted. Uh, it's an event by the uh, Edinburgh Futures Institute, uh, which is a new branch of the university. Um, it's about the future of health, uh, and they've got some uh, pretty cool people coming to this event. Coming, I mean, in a uh, virtual sense, because it's all online. Uh, but among them are Anthony Fauci, uh, who I guess has time to do events in Edinburgh or virtual events in Edinburgh, and a number of uh, public health scholars, both ones based here at the university uh, and other places, uh, and Chelsea Clinton, uh, who has done a lot of work with public health as part of the uh, Clinton Foundation. Uh, so I'm excited to, to hear uh, something about the future of public health, uh, which is obviously uh, extraordinarily pressing uh, at the moment because of the pandemic, but is important uh, in a, you know, even a broader sense, thinking about how, how the public health landscape is going to sort of unfold over the next uh, 10 or 20 years. Excellent, yes. Great, uh, until next time, Frank, cheers. Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.